Welcome to another episode of Capturing COVID, a podcast that takes experiences and turns them into memories. I'm sure everyone can think of ways that COVID-19 has impacted you. Whether it's treating positive COVID-19 patients on the front lines as a medical professional or pediatric intensive care unit doc, receiving your first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, or like our guest today, helping a major healthcare system in St. Louis develop an equitable approach to lack of life-saving resources. We created this podcast to document the stories and the history of COVID-19 from various perspectives with various situations. We are passionate about giving our audience a resource to listen, relate, and reminisce on a time in history that the world will never forget, the COVID-19 pandemic. So tune in for this approximately 60-minute episode, though my guest today says it might not be that long. We'll see. With me, Jason Newland, a pediatric infectious disease physician at Washington University in St. Louis, and the Schnook Family Endowed Chair of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Okay, gang, welcome to another edition. Now, today you get to join, well, of course, me and my guest, who's a fellow Oklahoman, which makes me extremely excited. Actually, extremely, extremely excited because, you know, us Okies, we, we stick together. So our guest today is Dr. Actually, it's kind of Dr. Dr. Jay Malone. Welcome, Jay. Thank you, Jason. It's always a pleasure. Boomer Sooner for our other Okies out there. Boomer Sooner. I agree. And you're like, you're like through and through Boomer Sooner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you're not like me who kind of left a little bit and came. I mean, you were all University of Oklahoma undergrad, University of Oklahoma Medical School, University of Oklahoma Pediatric Residency and Chief Residency. Yeah, they couldn't get rid of me. They tried over and over. I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> that is true. And you grew up in Edmond, Oklahoma. Is that correct? Yep, just north of Oklahoma City. And the high school you went to was the Oklahoma Science and Math? Oklahoma School of Science and Math, OSSM. It's OSSM, but all of us called it awesome. Yeah, everyone called it awesome except for the people who went to school there. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to delve into why that is, but we won't bore the guests maybe with that piece. Now, we're going to age ourselves a little bit. I'm sorry. You graduated from the University of Oklahoma Medical School in 2009. Yes, that's right. And I graduated from the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine, I should say. Sorry to all of our alums out there. In 2000. So we have a few years in between, but I consider you kind of like a really dear friend, even when I first got to St. Louis in 2016. So I, I just wanted to tell you, thank you for being that. Well, that's thanks for saying that. That's the Oklahoma connection, though, Jason. I mean, you find an Okie out in the wild, you become quick friends, right? It is true. I don't know about you, and it, just to kind of explain, but I've lived longer outside of Oklahoma than I've lived inside of Oklahoma, though I'm an Okie. Like, Okie is who I am. Yeah, I've had this debate many times. Like, how long do you have to live in a place before you start saying that you're from there? I still say I'm from Oklahoma. Yeah, I don't think it matters. I think if you feel like you're connected to it, you're there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we'll get back to introducing Jay because this is what I like to do. Jay, I'm guessing you would have stayed in Oklahoma for a pediatric intensive care unit fellowship if they had it? I probably would have. It's hard to say that now because I have loved being here, but you're right. The reason that I left was that there was no critical care training program. There was no fellowship program there at the time. Uh, and so I was sort of forced at that point to go look around. And you landed at St. Louis Children's Hospital, Washington University Critical Care Medicine. That's it. Yep. I interviewed all over the place, but, you know, I uh, knew that I wanted to do work in ethics. I was out on the interview trail and I was talking to people about doing ethics as my fellowship work, my academic work for fellowship. And I went to a few places that said, we would love to support that. We don't have the expertise here to support that. I went to a few places, and this is even more frustrating, who said, yeah, we have expertise in that, but we're not going to support you doing it. Wow! Yeah. I'm not going to name any names of programs, but I ran into a few of those. And here, I interviewed here, and the fellowship director at the time was Matthew Goldsmith, who's still here, but he's the medical director of the PICU and not the fellowship director anymore. He said... I don't actually know if we have a network of people that can support that, but let me look into it and we'll get back to you. And I left that interview thinking that's going to be another no. But they got back to me and said, you know, we've thought about this and we think we can support this interest. So that's sort of how I landed here. It's not surprising to me too, right? Knowing, knowing Matthew that he's a pretty straight shooter and then, like, and then figures it out because he knew that you'd be one of those, you know, future superstars, which you are, by the way. Now, hold on. I got to step back. So you and I know some of the same people at Oklahoma. Is it possible that Dr. Andy Gormley 
inspired you into going into critical care medicine or pediatric intensive care medicine? That whole group of ICU physicians was great in Oklahoma. Andy was Andy was awesome. Mo, awesome. I mean, he since then has gone on to chair the department. Mo Gesser and chair the department, yeah. He also, by the way, for what it's worth, did pediatric bioethics certificate program at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. A connection back to one of your uh, yeah. former homes, right? That's right. I was in Kansas City for 10 years at Children's Mercy. Fantastic place. And actually, one might say the center the center for bioethics, especially in pediatrics. Is that fair? Yeah, there's not many. I mean, you think of Seattle out on the West Coast, Boston on the East Coast, and then Kansas City in the middle of the country. Yeah, interesting. I, I will tell you, so I, I brought up Andy Gormley, and I would say Andy Gormley was the third-year pediatric resident when I was a third-year medical student. And all I can remember was laughing and just thinking medicine was the coolest. Pediatric medicine was the coolest thing to be a part of. And then he like, like they would make fun of me. They called me Oliver from the musical. That's how bad I was maybe. And my goodness, right? Like this is why when we have the young trainees, like our, our awesome producer who's about to start medical school in about three months, Gabby Smith, how I just, I just smile. I just think that, gosh, those were the days, man. They were so much fun. Anyway, but Andy, Andy, fantastic. Mark Fitzgerald, Mark Fitzgerald, I think he's fantastic. A lot of great people there. Yeah. And Oklahoma was a great place to be a med student and a resident because at the time, at least there were not a lot of subspecialty fellows, which meant for someone who was interested in critical care medicine in the ICU, I wasn't competing with anyone for procedures. I mean, you go to places with fellowship programs, the fellows are hungry for procedures. They're not letting those procedures go. We didn't have that competition. So the residents were doing all the procedures in the ICU and these attendings, guys like Andy Gormley, were totally happy to teach a resident how to do a procedure to walk you through it. So I was walking out of residency, having already done a lot of that stuff, super excited to be an intensivist. Something about, I feel like growing up where we grew up, you saw so many different groups of people and you were around so many different folks that told stories. I feel like half of my best buddies from medical school, all these guys that grew up in small town Oklahoma or somewhere in Oklahoma, they could spin a tale like nobody else's business, right? Like you'd be laughing, you might be crying, you might be hugging afterwards, but they just knew how to tell a story. Yeah, there's just that some sort of good old boy gene where you're just sort of born with it. Yeah. Good old boy, good old person, good old whatever. It's just you related. They just taught you how to relate and be real. It's, so we will talk about COVID, everybody. But you got two Okies. We got to talk some stuff here. In this intro, right, I, I owe a lot to Wash U and St. Louis Children. And I said Schnook family endowed chair. And I, I can imagine you as an Okie were about to like make fun of me for that because that's what you should, right? And so, you know, so I tell one of my medical school buddies who's a sports medicine doc and Claremore, Oklahoma, 6'9 guy that I've laughed so much with him and maybe drank maybe some beer with him in the past. So we have a lot of stories. And I tell him this and he's like, you got what? What the heck does that mean, man? Right? Like, do you get something special? I mean, it is why I love Oklahoma, right? Like, who the heck cares? I am appreciative of it. It allows me to do stuff. But the reality of it was it doesn't change who I am one bit. That's okay for you, right? It's like, no, just be you, dude. That doesn't, that doesn't change you. Fair? Is that a fair way of describing our people you grew up with? Yeah, just be you. And while you're doing that, even though everyone's going to support it, they're all going to find a way to make fun of you for it too. <laughs> fair, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to love it. He's like, hey, congrats, but dude, be you. And uh, I still love you. Okay, we got to get into the ethics part. You got your master's at Creighton and your PhD at St. Louis University. For those non-medical people, Remember, we do undergraduate degree, typically four years, four years of medical school. In pediatrics, you go to your pediatric residency first, which is three years. Some people do a chief resident, which is a fourth year. Did you do a fourth year chief residency or just a third year? Yeah, fourth year, we had two chief residents. During that year, I had, I think, probably the nicest office I'm ever going to have in my life. And I knew then I was never going to get back to the to the top story of the building. But yes, it was a fourth year. So he's one of the big leaders, smart people. That's why he was a chief resident. So that's four years. Then he's three years of critical care medicine fellowship. During that, he you can tell us he did some his ethics stuff and then probably got his PhD later. But anyway, why ethics? Where did 
this I want to be an ethicist come about? I think a lot of people who are interested in ethics can trace it back to maybe one case that they read about or heard about or one patient they were interested in that captured their imagination maybe in a good way, maybe in a terrible way, but left them thinking deeply about why we do the things we do. And that was true for me. And actually, it was in the ICU in Oklahoma. I'll spare you most of the details, but I was taking care of of a kid who had been really badly injured. The medical team was trying to figure out what to do with this kid. It wasn't totally clear that this child was going to survive. And I remember standing in his room with the bedside nurse and we were talking about it and she looked over and she said, you know, I think it might be better for him if he died. That, I mean, you know, as a, yeah. as a physician, your whole mentality on patient care is you're there to make people better, to bring them to health when you can, to comfort them when you can't. But you don't really think of dying as nope. the preferred or the best outcome. It's just not how we are trained to think. Nope. So hearing that, at the time, that scandalized me. I didn't know what to make of that. And at the same time, I was standing there looking at this kid, and I was very early in my training. I, didn't, I hadn't seen a lot of kids in this shape. I understood what she meant. You know, I could look at this kid and see what it was that she was talking about. I think for a lot of people, that type of experience hardens them a little. They go into themselves. They don't consciously process that, but you know, you just start to pick up experiences like that. I'm back to the drawing board on figuring out what it is that we're doing as healthcare professionals. I've got to sort out what's the point of all this? What is the goal of medicine? What are we trying to do here? And that sent me down this whole road that I'm still on, trying to figure out answers to these really big questions about why we do the things we do, how we should think about making these decisions, and what the point of all of this work in medicine is that we do. And for what it's worth, Jason, that patient did survive. I have checked in with colleagues in Oklahoma that he's followed up with, and and apparently he's thriving. He's doing really well. So Yeah. It is, I don't know if you have this feeling. I know I personally have had that, just like you said, Maybe it's better if they die. And it's this guilty feeling. How could I ever think that? A a life is so precious. And I'm now thinking that. And you're like, whoa, hold on. It somewhat hardens you because then you just put it away and go somewhere else. At least that's what I've done. Right. And we see a lot of suffering. We see people who are in pain. Our approach is usually to try to alleviate that, to try to stop the pain, care for the suffering. But the idea that that someone is suffering so badly that the only way to eliminate the suffering is to eliminate the sufferer is a totally different level of thinking about it. And Ooh. one that I think is shocking the first time you encounter it and subsequent times you encounter it. Every time you see that as a physician, that's it's really, really hard. Yeah, I'm going to bring up another Oklahoma thing. Dr. Gordon Deckert, do you remember his talk he gave at the beginning of med school around being a doctor? I don't know that I interacted with Dr. Deckert, Jason. Well, you know, he basically gave this, like, for a long time, gave one of the orientation talks. This just this story and thinking about this notion of being a doctor and some of these things that you encounter. He tells this story of, you know, this family, new, new graduate of med school going out and having a family. And, and this existential question, maybe, maybe or not, you think it is or not an existential question, I feel like, is when are you a doctor? And his whole talk is this notion of, but when are you a doctor? In this, he goes through things about what changes people's lives. And being in healthcare is one of them that changes people because you deal with things that nobody typically else does, just like being in a war. If you're in a war, your lives are, are changed. And, and it's one of these vivid experiences. I remember him saying that, like, what other profession do you actually talk about pee and stooling and death, right? in a way where we have conversations and we're dealing and we've had conversations with people about their child dying, talking about the end of life stuff. Yeah. I think those questions of what does it mean to be a physician? When are you a physician? Can you stop being a physician? Yeah. Those go right back to that. You know, what's the point of everything we're doing? And yeah, one of my mentors at SLU, who I'm very fond of, and we, well, we get together once a month and talk philosophy and have some wine, uh, Jeff Bishop, who was my advisor for my dissertation work. And 
just an amazing physician philosopher. Um, when I was in my coursework, he asked me, what had to die for you to become a doctor? You know, that's like uh, superficially sounds pretty simple, but you can pretty quickly dive to a lot of layers in that question. Yeah. And I've thought about that question a lot since then. I knew when he asked it that it was going to be something I spent a lot of time thinking about. To me, it's, it's like one of those statements that Dr. Deckard made. What does it mean to be this thing? How does it yep. change who you are? What had to die out in the world, but also what parts of you had to be altered forever to become this thing that you're trying to be? Oh, man. I mean, at the end of the talk, he says, look, you're always, you're always a doctor. You're always a son. You're always a husband. You're always a, a dad. There's these things that are about you that you end up carrying with you wherever you go. I was too young and immature probably and maybe potentially maybe drank a little too much the day before. I will neither deny or confirm that. I, I wish I could hear him do that talk again. And now, you know, I graduated in 2000, right? So we're going on 23 years from my graduation. Like I want, I need to hear it again. All right. I, you said I couldn't talk. I mean, 20 minutes and we haven't even gotten to COVID. And I will say to know more about Jay. He is one of my colleagues. He is a critical care medicine doctor in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis and an associate professor of pediatrics. That is a recent promotion. Congratulations, Dr. Malone. Thank you. Okay, good. So you're an adjunct associate professor of healthcare ethics at St. Louis University. And you have really led ethics and bioethics at St. Louis Children's Hospital, as well as at even at a higher level at times during the pandemic at the BJC healthcare system. Is that all a fair statement of kind of what your role has been since you've joined the faculty back in 2016? Yeah, I've had some really fortunate opportunities to have leadership positions in ethics at Children's Hospital. Yeah. Okay. So... By the way, I, I want to say, can I join the wine talking in physician philosophy? Am, am I, I might not be smart enough, but I'd love to kind of, you know, maybe listen. No, I think we can make that happen. Okay. And the other thing people need to know, and we might delve into this later, is Jay is a sommelier. Did I say that correctly? It's close enough. Certified sommelier. Sommelier. Sorry, I dropped out that one syllable. Apologize. So he is. So I will say if people want to send in questions about favorite wines, best wines, we can pass those on to Dr. Malone. But this isn't a show or a podcast about wine. It is about COVID. So let's shift it to COVID. You had a really interesting role in COVID. Well, just an interesting role throughout. But I want to start, though, with what it was like for you and your family back in March, or maybe sooner, of 2020. You know, I'm going to tell you what I did at the beginning of March 2020 and I'm worried you're going to be upset at me, Jason, but you know, we, we were aware, we knew that COVID was out there and it's been strange thinking back on those like early days of the pandemic when we sort of vaguely aware of it, we knew it was coming, we knew it was going to hit the shores here. We weren't probably yet quite aware of how bad it was going to be, but like no one was masking yet, no one was doing any of those things. And I had a trip that had been planned for a while to New York City, maybe the second week of March. Yeah. So you're already laughing. You, I mean, you remember, I mean, that was just, we were on the edge of the cliff and we didn't quite know it yet. We didn't know the cliff was there yet, but people should know like March 1st was the first case in New York city. And by this time, by the time he's talking about his trip, though, it wasn't reported. It was a forest fire of COVID in New York city, but keep going, please. I'm planning to go to New York second week of March. And the first week of March, I get some sort of respiratory illness and I'm thinking, uh, I hope this doesn't cause a problem with my trip. And it's like, <laughs> it's getting worse and worse. And so I went to urgent care. And in retrospect, this was a, such a bizarre experience because I went to the urgent care with respiratory symptoms. In March. In March. And they came in, no masks, no gloves. They took my history. They said, you know, it sounds like the flu. They said, we're going to swab you for flu. They went, got the test kit, came back in, still no mask, swabbed me, left for a few minutes, came back in, still no masks, and said, <laughs> yep, it's positive. You've got flu A. <laughs> no mask in sight. They, you know, they prescribed me my Tamiflu. I take my Tamiflu, and by the time my New York trip rolls around, I'm, I'm feeling better. I'm ready to go. 
So I head out and I'm in New York, second week of March, cruising around on public transportation. No one's wearing masks. What we had started doing at that point was elbow bumping instead of shaking hands, which, you know, for, for all the difference that made. We were like packing six people into a cab. We were riding the subway, totally naive to what was going on. I mean, no one sort of really knew yet. How much trouble am I in with you for that? Not not at all, actually, because prior to, one would say, April of 2020, it was common people were going in in EDs and urgent cares for decades without wearing masks to test people for flu. One would know it's not the smartest move, but anyway. Question, though, did any of your colleagues that you went to New York with in the middle of March get COVID? I don't, I don't know. I don't think... Or anybody get a respiratory illness? Not that I know of, but we weren't really tracking it. I mean, yeah. we didn't really reach back out to anyone and say, how did you fare? We weren't really paying attention. You know, now you're in a conference room and you can sort of spot the person who's got the sniffles or keeps coughing. And it like just sort of, it triggers in your mind. It's like, ah, oh, that person's sick. We should pay a little attention to that. No one was paying attention to that. And, you know, we were elbow bumping, so we were probably fine. Yeah, right. Right? <laughs> Oh, man. So I don't know. I don't know. if anyone Yeah, yeah, knows. interesting. So everyone should know, Jay's amazing wife is worked with me, is an amazing collaborator. I said it. Hopefully, I keep, need to keep saying it. She saved our research group's tales over and over throughout our pandemic. So his better half is truly his better half, Sarah Malone. Now, wasn't John just born? Like, John was little, your son? Wasn't it, how old was John at the time of March of 2020? One year, one month. He had just turned one. He turned oh, one in February 2020. You know, I think like a lot of parents with young kids, when things really started sort of shutting down, one of the things we were really worried about was how's this going to impact kids? John has been in daycare and had a lot of interactions with other kids since he was a little baby. And when we pulled him out of that, we were worried about social development, about language development, about all those things. And at the same time that schools were shutting down and daycares were shutting down, workplaces were shutting down too. So we were also trying to sort out how do both of us keep doing work we're trying to do related to the pandemic, which was ramping up while we've got our kid at home. That was a major juggling trick to try to sort all that out. And John's um, social development has been absolutely fantastic. I was with him the other day stealing french fries, and he was giving me some of the best comments any good four-year-old would give said 49-year-old. Yeah, he, he's fantastic. Yeah, interestingly, you know, people were really worried about getting kids to wear masks and all that stuff. He never yep. had any problem with it. For the really young kids, he just never knew anything different. One interesting thing coming out of COVID was he was probably two years old the first time he really like sort of aware that we were taking him into a grocery store, the produce section just totally blew his mind. Yeah. He sort of grew up getting food delivered to home and right. had never been in a grocery store. Hadn't gone out. Yeah. Wow. So family stuff, obviously interesting, hard, but before we jump into your ethics role, what was it like clinically? I mean, you're a critical care doc. I know you're taking shifts in the COVID unit. What was that like early on? Well, very early on, we were just sort of bracing for it. You know, we sort of knew it was coming. There was a lot of preparatory work for that. And I should say that I'll tell you more about the clinical stuff, but I just want to mention as we're sort of moving forward through time here, when I was thinking about coming on this podcast, I went back and like looked at my emails for when, when we first started emailing about some of the ethics stuff. The first email that I sent was right at the beginning of January. I sent an email to our CMO at the hospital and said, hey, uh, just a quick reminder, we don't have a policy for how to deal with a ventilator shortage. And there's this thing going on in China, seems like it could be a concern. We should probably start thinking about policy for how to deal with this. And at the time, she sort of went, thanks, we'll keep you posted if we need anything. <laughs> wow. So it was, you know, it was out there. It was, people were thinking about it. So then, you know, jump over to the clinical space a little bit further forward in time. By the time I was getting back into the clinical world, that ethics work had really ramped up because okay. we were starting to see what was happening in 
Europe, we were seeing what was happening in New York. And we've talked about before that St. Louis had this nice sort of time buffer as things were like moving across the globe. We could see how bad things were going to be. It didn't get to the middle of the country right away. So for the clinical work, we were seeing it play out other places. I think there was a lot of anxiety associated with that because what we were seeing play out in other places, none of it looked very good on the news, on social media. My first week of clinical service during COVID time, when we had actually COVID patients in our ICU, who were adults, by the way, I moved to the basement of our house. It's a little weird to think about now, but you have to recall how much uncertainty there was. There were so many question marks and no one wanted to bring this home from the hospital on their clothes, on their body. So Sarah and I talked a lot about what we should do. I didn't want to drag this home to her and John. So like I slept upstairs in our bedroom the night before that first clinical shift. And then during that day, she set up a bed, an air mattress and some supplies for me down in the basement. When I came home, I went in the basement, stayed there for a few weeks until we could sort out that I wasn't sick. That must have been super hard. Yeah. I mean, it was hard for our whole family. You mentioned that Sarah was doing a ton of work on the research side. She was trying to balance a lot. I said that we were juggling trying to figure out what to do with John. Now all of a sudden, it's all on her. But yeah, that was a tough time for me too. I mean, I that first day I came home and I went down to the basement and they had put a sign up on the wall that said, we're proud of you, dad, with a little drawing from John. Yeah. And that was a particularly tough moment for me that I sort of sat down on my air mattress and felt a lot of the weight of the sort of uncertainty, stress, and anxiety about whether we were all going to be safe and make it through. Yeah. I often forget because I didn't understand what you and my colleagues and friends and that were doing that were really frontline, frontline. You were tipped, right? I mean, people were coming to you sick as stink with this virus that you had seen and heard about being transmitted to everybody, and we didn't quite understand how. One of my memories from very early on doing clinical care is we had established this whole protocol for how we were going to intubate patients that needed to be intubated because of COVID disease. The way that we were entering and exiting rooms was totally different than it had been prior. We had teams of people that would sort of assemble outside of a room and help you to don and doff your protective gear. So you sort of had to just stand their arms out while someone put a gown and gloves and the appropriate protective gear on you. And then when you came out of a room, same thing in reverse for people to help you take it all off. And everyone was washing everything with chemicals that couldn't have been healthy for us. <laughs> no. But you also think about the way that you would want an ICU team to coordinate care of a patient with very clear closed loop communication uh, and ability for people to enter and exit the room to bring in medications and supplies when needed. We had to plan ahead for all of that stuff. And so if something went sideways with an intubation or something like that, the people and the supplies you had in the room were basically what you had because the time lag to get someone out, get all their gear stripped off, bring some new stuff into the room, it's just too long. So the amount of preparation that had to happen to make that work effectively took a lot of a lot of thought and a lot of preparation from a lot of different people. What I love about doing this podcast and having all of you on, and obviously I had one of your dear colleagues, Dr. Mary Hartman on, is that you guys all have these different angles and it goes there or not. And this is one I hadn't really thought of. And, and for the listener who might not know all the medical stuff, right? Intubation is putting a breathing tube in somebody because they can't breathe. While it sounds like, hey, they just take a tube and they put it in, there's all these other things that have to happen, right? Like the medications to make sure the patient is comfortable and doesn't know they're having a tube put in them because that's a traumatic experience to making sure you have the right tool to be able to put that tube into the airway so that you can do it, to making sure you have the actual ventilator there to set it up. I can't imagine the number of like, if you laid out the number of steps it takes, but it's in the hundreds really, if you laid it out. And the notion of this preparation because of this, what we would say donning and doffing of personal protective equipment, right? The putting on and taking off of our equipment to protect us. Oh, I forgot that. 
Dude, I couldn't find my stinking earbuds that I wanted the other day. I went in and out of my house three times. I can't imagine if I was having to don and doff just to put a life-saving tube in someone so they can breathe. Yeah, you don't want to get halfway into that procedure and realize that you're missing something that you really need. It's not where you want to be. Really complex and hard. And you know, Jason, I should say that since you did talk to Mary Hartman about this same stuff, people need to know that Mary is much more eloquent about this than I am. So if you're listening to this, you probably should just turn it off. Go listen to Mary's version of this story. You get a much clearer idea of what we're talking about. He's an Okie. And one of the things they teach you being in Oklahoma is how to be very self-deprecating. He is being very self-deprecating. But no, no, this is good. Don't you stop listening now. It's only about to get even better as we move forward. Just talk about something that we, we really haven't talked about any time before. What was your feeling after sending the first email to the CMO about the allocation issue? So allocation meaning, hey, we don't have enough of the breathing machines to help people breathe, the potential of not having enough breathing machines, and coming up with a strategy to do that or any other resource. What happens next for you? How do we get there? And just talk to us about what happened. Health systems had tried to work on this during H1N1. So 2008, 2008, 2009, H1N1 pandemic. So 12 years ago in 2020. Just like COVID, I think at the beginning of that, people didn't know how bad it was going to be. Yep. And so people started to realize that we had a vulnerability as healthcare systems with our planning. It won't surprise you to know as an institutional leader, you know how complex these systems are that we work in Ugh. with many different hospitals who have their own leadership and their own approach. Our system spans state lines. So there's many different regulatory things that are that are involved in hospital service provision. So these systems are incredibly complicated. So getting groups of people to agree to a single uniform approach across the board that everyone's going to deploy the same way proved very difficult in 2008 and nine. So there was a lot of work that went into creating policies for how we would allocate scarce resources. If we thought we were going to run out of ventilators, how are we going to decide who gets that ventilator? That work never got approved. People did a lot of work and tried to get everyone on the same page. And it just, we couldn't do it. And part of that was that the pressure of the situation went away. H1N1 was bad. But it wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. And it certainly wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be in terms of how many ventilators we needed. There were many hospitals that had these sort of half-baked policies stuck back in someone's inbox somewhere. And I had had the opportunity to look at what we had. And there was some work that had been done, but it was not ready for prime time. I started thinking about how we would deal with that problem. I started sending emails pretty early on and no one was ready to think about that yet. The secret, Jason, is after I sent that first email, I just started working on it. I was writing what I thought would be a workable plan in January because I sort of thought to myself, even if we don't need this right now for this thing, for COVID, we're going to want it. We're going to yeah. want it as a system and we should start, we should have a framework that we can start to talk about and think about. It turns out we, we did need to put something on the shelf. You know, one of the driving motivating factors early on was no one wanted a patient to get treated differently because they went to one hospital versus another hospital. When we're talking about shortages of something like ventilators that would, you know, save your life if you need one, we didn't want for Wash U to have a policy that would prevent someone from getting a ventilator when if they had gone to SSM, they would have gotten the ventilator or vice versa. And so it became apparent early on that we actually needed a regional plan for this particular problem. And that meant not only were we going to have to get our very large, very complicated health system to agree upon a uniform approach, we were going to have to get the other health systems in the region also to agree. So this is starting to feel like a huge, huge undertaking. Whoa. Those who have listened, we've talked about this, but those who haven't, St. Louis is made up of a number of different healthcare systems. There's three major healthcare systems. There's the BJC healthcare system for whom that's who Jay and I work with. That's who Wash U's affiliated with. There's about 14 other hospitals. Our major flagship hospitals, Barnes Jewish Hospital the, and St. Louis Children's Hospital with them. 
Then there's SSM. That's affiliated with St. Louis University. They have Cardinal Glennon um, as their children's hospital. And then there's the Mercy Hospital System. There's other hospitals, including St. Luke's. And we had our pandemic task force, which I think is one of the probably highlights of what St. Louis did to work together. And I think this conversation here also demonstrates the fact that we as a community wanted to make sure that, and I'm not surprised that people like Jay and others were leading to make sure you, if you st stepped in one hospital, it didn't change your likelihood of getting a ventilator. Is that, is that a fair summary to everything? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's worth mentioning, Jason, that the other thing that was on my radar very early on was that there were going to be some equity concerns related to the distribution of these resources. It's also worth saying that we were thinking and talking about ventilators, and it became very apparent later on, we can talk about this, that there were all sorts of resources that we might have to think about in terms of resource allocation. I mean, there was dialysis machines and ECMO machines and all these life support technologies that we use in hospitals. Treatments. Like, let's talk monoclonal antibodies, remdesivir, vaccine. I yep. mean, everything had some sort of resource issue. Fluids. I mean, it was crazy how many resources went short or weren't going to be there if you needed it. Right. And so eventually we're thinking about all of those things and many of those different things, therapeutics versus technologies, had different working groups that were that were working on how we would vaccines were oh, it was a whole nother project. <sighs> but what I wanted to mention related to the equity bit was that I was aware of this work that had been done in Baltimore before the pandemic. They did a really cool thing that I think is a model for how communities should be involved in ethics work. One of the authors of this study, Doug White, wrote the sort of model resource allocation policy that a lot of different hospitals across the country ended up using. But the work in Baltimore was really interesting. What they did was they went out into the community, they got focus groups, they got groups of people together, and they said, we're going to teach you a little bit about the ways that you might decide to distribute scarce resources, different types of decisions you might make. And we want you to deliberate amongst yourselves and think about how you as a community would want us as a medical community to distribute these resources if it came to that. So they gave them the situation of a hypothetical pandemic influenza. Wow. And they said, if we're short on ventilators, how should we decide who gets the last ventilator? What was really interesting, Jason, was that they repeated this study in suburban Howard County and then in inner city East Baltimore. These are two very, very demographically different places. And they wanted to see how do people in these two very different locations ask us to make decisions about ventilators. And they did it very differently. They wanted the medical community to think about things very differently. I think one of the most striking examples was that when we ask people, should we consider who's most likely to survive, which of course takes into account all sorts of comorbid conditions and accumulated health risk and health problems that people have gotten over time. People out in suburbia said, yeah, of course, you should consider who's most likely to survive. And people in the city said, no, we're not so sure about that mechanism because it was clear to them that's going to disadvantage us. If you're trying to choose between me or someone from out in the suburbs. Yeah. Is it fair to say that the Howard County suburbia is what we would expect in St. Louis region where the systemic racism has led to white flight and we have white rich, more privileged, or more socioeconomically advantaged out in suburbia versus inner city, predominantly poor, black, disadvantaged? This is part of why it was so striking. As I was yeah. thinking about this early on, I was reading this and, you know, it's like, this says Baltimore, but it sure sounds like St. Louis. And when you get down to it, it sounds like a lot of cities. It's like U.S. Country. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, you know, the, in suburbia, we're very concerned about logistics. They wanted to know, how will the decisions be made? How will things occur when I get to the hospital setting? The people in the city said, we want to make sure that, that things are going to be fair for particular groups of people. Specifically, they highlighted felons and immigrants. And people in the suburbs weren't putting much thought into these specific groups of people. But for people 
where those groups were highly prevalent in their community, of course, they're concerned about it. It was clear early on that we were going to have to think about this as we were developing these strategies. Whoa. Okay. So we will get that paper and make sure we get it into the show notes. I was on a call with you. My wife is an infectious disease pharmacist. You, we used to joke that like you and Helen used to be on tons of meetings together while you, your wife, Sarah, and I were in meetings and working together all the time. It was like we could ask each other's spouse how the other one was doing because that's how much time we were all spending together. What was happening when it became evident we were going to or potentially going to have shortage? What were these decisions like? What were the conversations with these large groups? Yeah, these were very interesting conversations. And these decisions got moved up to a pretty high leadership level pretty quickly because we needed quick action, which meant that we couldn't be going through a whole lot of administrative layers to try to get to a person who could, for the system, say, okay, we can get on board with that. The pressure that people were under at the time, the system leaders must have been making 100,000 decisions a day. They were just having to very quickly onboard information, make decisions the best that they could and move forward. And we can talk in a few minutes about what's happened, all the policies we developed as things have wound down. But I think one of the things we learned is that the pressure, the immense pressure that everyone was under to get something workable up on the shelf in case we needed to use it, really motivated people to be more flexible, to come to an agreement that seemed acceptable. No one was in the mood to let perfect be the enemy of good enough in this situation. The conversations were interesting because we'd be pulling in these super high-level administrators for like a few minutes to give them a brief and they'd be off to the next thing. In many ways, an amazing experience because of Everyone was doing their best. Everyone was collaborating and trying to come up with the best possible solution. There was no one working against the mission of the team. Like it felt like everyone was really on the same page trying to sort this out. If you can say or want to say, what was, how was it determined who was going to get the last ventilator? I probably can't do it justice in just a okay. quick explanation because ultimately it's quite complex. Yep. But I will say that like many other systems, we used scoring systems to try to determine someone's likelihood of survival. We were in a minority of healthcare systems in that we had scoring systems to be used for pediatric and neonatal patients. We realized that people knew early on that COVID was primarily impacting adults and older adults. A pediatric ventilator can ventilate an adult. Meanwhile, we had kids getting sick for other reasons. And so it felt important to me as a pediatrician to look out for the kids a little bit and say, if the last ventilator, if we've got to make a decision between sending it to the children's hospital or pulling it over to the adult hospital, how are we going to make that decision? So wow. not a lot of healthcare systems had plans in place for how to deal with children in these allocation systems. We had a pretty robust mechanism for doing that with scoring systems that were designed specifically for kids. So I was actually quite proud of that work that I think set our protocols apart from a lot of other places. And then, you know, layered on top of these scoring systems were a lot of tiebreakers because it was obvious that if you had an overwhelming number of patients coming in, you may well have patients who basically are scoring out in the same range for how sick they are. So we had a lot of different tiebreakers that were in a rank order. That was actually probably where most of the discussion occurred between the different systems, which tiebreakers people were willing to accept or not accept was, was a spot where there was a lot of discussion. One thing that we did as a group like I said, we're interested in advancing the equity concern. We had a lot of conversations about, especially into the fall, when people were you know, bracing for additional waves. We were really thinking about this. We um, considered whether to use something like area of deprivation index and look at where people lived as a way to try to understand their social and structural determinants of health. That was going to be operationally very, very challenging. What we ended up doing was removing moderate comorbidities from consideration in our protocol. And the reason moderate comorbidities are in the protocol in the first place was to try to estimate how sick someone was going to get. 
you know that the more comorbid conditions someone has, the more likely they are to get very sick or die from COVID. COVID. And we were looking at this as patients who have historically been discriminated against by the systems that exist, we're going to have more comorbid conditions. It's just something that's clearly empirically demonstrable. Yep. So we said, we're not going to consider those. That for us was a major move towards yeah. advancing the equity of the policy. What's considered a moderate comorbidity? Is that like diabetes and hypertension or? Yeah, exactly. And there was a whole list of them in our original protocol. Yeah. We had approved a protocol and sent it off to the regional pandemic task force. It was sort of sitting on the shelf, ready to go. We requested that it get pulled back down so that we could make these adjustments. Wow. Um, systems all very quickly agreed to these changes. Wow. How did you feel doing this? I know this was hard to come even on the podcast. So what what was it like reliving this a little bit and thinking about all of how hard this was? Because you, the way you're presenting it, it makes it sound like, oh, this is no big deal. But I, I don't, I know you better than that. I mean, how hard was this? Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in being a clinician as an ethicist. I know a lot of great ethicists who don't happen to be clinicians and they do wonderful work. But as a clinician, I think I have a particular perspective on the impact on patients of the work. And, you know, I've done a lot of sort of theoretical thought-based ethics work. This was really hard for me because I was bouncing between days in the ICU at Children's Hospital and at Barnes Jewish Hospital and then coming back home and spending evenings and nights working on these policies. And so when I was thinking about these, this was not an abstract exercise for me. I was, I had particular patients with names and histories and families and friends in my mind. And there were some dark moments for me, Jason. I mean, I had a, I had a hard time with this work because these were real people for me. I couldn't figure out a way to separate that in my head. I knew that I was writing a policy that might, at the end of the day, mean someone was going to die because they did not get a ventilator. And I, I couldn't turn that off. I couldn't stop thinking about that. Thank you for sharing that. I, I know that's, that's not easy. You being a clinician makes these policies better. But, you know, even even thinking about it and trying to put myself in my shoes, I get little chills and I could, I could feel myself even well up a little bit. Because um, when you've had to you know, have a child die for whatever reason, it's heart wrenching. And now you're in this position of potentially having people die because they couldn't get what normally they could get. But now we're in this global pandemic where we were so overrun, you might not get what you need. And when I say that, I mean, for people out there, right, that means you could be in there for a non COVID related issue and not be able to get a ventilator or not be able to get the care you need because there's a, there's so much COVID. Yeah, that's right. And our policy was meant for all comers. It wasn't yeah. just people with COVID who were in the pool for ventilators. It was people who were there for any reason. That's another thing I hadn't even taken into account. Right? These policies had to be for everything. Yeah, exactly. Right? And I always used to say, look, I mean, we're getting overrun with COVID, right? That means if you're out there and you get you have a car accident or you have a run-of-the-mill heart attack, you might not have a bed for you. And you're not going to get the care you need to get. Therefore, you're going to have a worse outcome. Or in this case, you might not get your ventilator. Yeah. There were some pretty low moments during that period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So here you are taking care of these patients. And you said I was at Children's and Barnes. Well, everyone should know Children's, as you can imagine, was pediatrics, kids. Barnes was adults. And if you listen to Dr. Hartman, you heard some stories about taking care of adults. What was it like for Dr. Malone doing these shifts at the adult hospital during the height? I mean, some of the worst times of the pandemic. You know, in retrospect, there, there are some things that are just totally gut-wrenching about that. I mean, there were just horrible things that happened. And at the same time, there's this sort of cognitive dissonance because there were some things about that experience that were just hysterical. Hard to sort of summarize some yeah. of what happened. The, the very first day that I was over there, I, I don't spend any time in Barnes Jewish Hospital. And I was wandering around over there in a papper. Think of a papper as like a space suit over your face. And it's for guys that like to have beards and don't can't wear the N95 masks. So think of it like a space suit. Fair? I did, for what it's worth, 
shave my beard at the beginning of the pandemic because I was trying to do the right thing and conserve resources. But by this point, we had pappers in supply. I grew the beard back out. By the way, you look really good in a beard, being a fellow bearded person now following your lead. So I am glad you could have the beard come back. I appreciate that. But because of that, I was wearing what you described as a spacesuit, wandering around the hospital, trying to figure out where the ICU was. And I bumped into someone who said, hey, can I help you find something? And I said, yeah, I'm looking for the ICU. She said, "Uh, may I ask who you are? I said, yeah, I'm the ICU attending for the night. (laughs) That's how crazy it was. It was so nuts that people were having to do these shifts. It's like, I don't know. Okay. Oh, okay. He is rather young looking, so he could be thought of as a medical student. I walked in the first night, gave the charge nurse a coffee and said, please take care of me. And they did. All future medical students, our current residents should all learn that technique. Yeah. It's important to take care of the people who really run the ICU, which are the nurses and the charge nurses. And really save the lives. I mean, like, honestly, like they're unbelievable. Yeah. But, you know, the thing that was the hardest over there, Jason, was the thing that you hear a lot of people talking about, which is that these adults were totally isolated at that point in time. And we never had to totally pull that lever in the pediatric world. We always got a parent. Yeah. But the first night that I was there having to make a FaceTime call on an iPad so that we could give devastating news to a spouse. I mean, that, that was just a a terrible thing that we had to do. I need to shift in one more here. You got to tell the story about you and Sarah going to dinner for the first time and how you landed on the news. <laughs> this is one of the funniest stories of the pandemic that one. I, you got to tell this story for the for the listener. This did not feel funny at the time, but Oh, I'm sure it didn't, but <laughs> I'm telling you, it's hilarious. We like a lot of other people in healthcare took vaccination very seriously. We got vaccinated as soon as we possibly could. We took masking and social distancing very seriously and we hadn't been out to eat in you know a year and a half or whatever it was and one of the local restaurants in town announced that they were also going to take vaccination seriously so if you wanted to sit inside at this restaurant you had to be vaccinated they weren't going to let you sit inside indoors if you weren't vaccinated so we decided we were going to go out to eat and because they were taking vaccination seriously we wanted to support them so we went we got there and we we couldn't do it we were too nervous to sit inside And it was like pretty hot outside, but we decided like, let's just sit outside. We'll still get to have a nice meal, sit outside on the patio. And we were sitting out there having a cocktail and saw a news crew setting up. And then all of a sudden there's a reporter uh, standing sort of off to the side with a camera pointing through the reporter and toward us. And then all of a sudden our phones start going off. We're getting text messages (laughs) with screenshots of the local news with a banner across the bottom that says local restaurant seats unvaccinated outside. (laughs) Somehow Sarah managed to get connected to the person who was directing that broadcast during the broadcast. And they pulled the story down off their website. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, the first time you told that, I was like, Oh my, I mean, we were all so paranoid and we wanted to be vaccinated. And then you see this on the news and you're like, Oh my gosh. And it was live. I forgot it was live. Yeah. I, you know, the most shocking thing about this was, uh, how many people watch the local news? I had no idea. It's true. Unfortunately, I got a to re- get reminded that often. Yeah, you were on there every week, right? Oh, my or goodness. More. Yeah, thank goodness that's over. Oh, that's great. Thank you for that. Okay, a couple other questions. How has the COVID pandemic changed the way you view healthcare and or the healthcare community? Boy, that's a tough one. My approach to the work, and I think a lot of people who have been coming up through medical training during COVID, their approach to this work feels a little bit different in a few ways. One, I just think that the nature of this pandemic caused people to sort of reevaluate what was really important in their lives. And you know, I think a lot of people who are in medicine, physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, all these teams of people that we work with take their calling to medicine very, very seriously and give it very high priority. And at the same time, this was this moment of reminder of how important all these other things in our lives are family and sharing food with friends and traveling and concerts and all these things that we do in our lives. And I think this was a moment that caused a lot of people to introspect and think about the relative balance of 
time and importance they wanted to give to all these different things in their lives. So that's one thing. I, th I think that the impact of that on people who train during this time period is going to really change the shape of how medical care is delivered and, and what people are willing to do and not do yeah. in their lives, in their professional and personal lives. Yeah. So I think the shape of things is going to change over time because of this in ways that we might not be able to predict yet. Yeah, I, that's a great point. And, you know, Hillary Babcock came on one of the episodes who a BJC healthcare major leader, like you said, 100,000 decisions a day. That's what she said to taught her to draw a line. I hadn't thought of it from the training perspective. I think it's just going to be intriguing to watch how that changes. And I would argue it's going to be for the better. Um, healthcare is going to be better because of that. But I think we'll be better physicians, clinicians, you know, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, you name it, because we have learned what is important in our own personal lives. I think the other thing that I have to mention, since you're asking about sort of the way that I perceive medicine, the medical community, is it became obvious in ways that it hadn't been to me before, how many dedicated teams of people are doing this work sort of behind the scenes. And I, as an ICU guy, like I was aware of the clinical teams up front. And obviously we have big teams of people who often don't get the amount of recognition that they deserve. We have tons of people who support the work that happens in a hospital. Behind the scenes, there's all these decisions being made that really impact the way that care is delivered. We've talked about this today, like I was out by myself developing these policies, just not true. There yeah. were these huge teams of people, including your wife, Helen Newland, but Bruce Hall and Jackie Sato and Steve Wasserman and Marty Antal and Chris Blank, these teams of people, Tiffany Osborne, I can just like, you can keep naming people. And I'm so sorry if there's someone that I didn't just name, but there were so many people putting effort into this work. It was deeply impacting a lot of different people. And I think we just have to mention how many people were involved in all of this. Thank you for doing that. You're absolutely right. And you were doing it at Remember, he said he was seeing patients. Everyone listen. He was seeing patients during the day, as were many of those you mentioned. These meetings weren't at 2 in the afternoon. These meetings were like at 7 p.m. and lasting a long time. Yes, you are one of those, again, gracious Okies, humble in your response, but a major leader in one of these behind-the-scenes people. Because I honestly think 95% of the people out there had no clue there was people like you developing these policies and helping make sure we had decisions so that it was done in an equitable way, in a way that we would all be comfortable with in a, or an unprecedented time. So thank you for that. Okay, what was the most influential thing that someone has or had told you that helped you through the COVID-19 pandemic? There was an article in The Atlantic. You may have read this. I don't I know. I like The Atlantic. In 2021. I'll, I'll look it up and send you the information on it. Perfect. Maybe you can link to it. It was called you won't remember the pandemic the way you think you will. And the whole idea was that uh, this should be relevant to you with the work you're doing on this podcast. The whole deal was that the stories you hold on to that you carry forward are going to be shaped by your own experiences, by the experiences of your circle, of your family and friends. I've got this quote from this article written down here. It's the end of the article. Melissa Faye Green it's the author. She says, it's a representative moment of the pandemic era of a type that might emerge as a theme in many of our tales that in the worst of times, even as many people surprised us with their indifference, ignorance, racism, and aggression, other people, some of them friends and colleagues, some total strangers, managed to cross barriers and offer us kindness, compassion, alliance, and strength. So true. Oh, man, that's fantastic. I feel like we could just do another whole podcast just about that quote. I'm going to send you the article. I think I think you'll find it meaningful. Absolutely. Whew. Okay, last questions, non-COVID. Okay, let's do it. Where would you go if you could visit any place on Earth and why? I'm going to bend the rules of your question a little bit, Jason. That's fine. You're allowed. Now that it's possible, money's no object here, right? Correct. You can go wherever you want. I'm booking a ticket on one of those billionaire rocket ships. I want to get up there. Yes! Why? I have always wanted to be an astronaut. So have I. Can I admit that? Really? Yes! Absolutely! 
Man, Oklahoma has a, a rich history of astronauts. Honestly, I was at a cell biology meeting in 2005, and they had a NASA booth, and I literally went over there and I almost applied. Man, if someone knocked on my door right now and said, you can go, but you got to go right now, you might not ever see me again. If they ask you to bring a friend, <laughs> will you bring me? Yeah, you got it. So maybe this is uh, my best opportunity to live that out. I mean, obviously, I'm a little past prime for joining the Space Corps. But now that all of Earth's billionaires are offering us the opportunity to get up there, I think that's what I would do. There we go. I love it. I love it. Okay, uh, what was your childhood dream job and why? Well, there you go. You just got it. Astronaut. Astronaut, of course. What's the why on that? I mean, can you think of a greater adventure? No. That's it. I love the simplicity in that answer. Another oaky trait. Fantastic. Okay, last one. What book are you currently reading? First of all, I got I have a stack of books on my nightstand. That's fine. Pick the two or three that you're like that you're into right now. Yeah, okay, so I'll tell you two. They're a little bit different. I love it. They're a little bit different. One, this isn't gonna surprise you too much. I'm in a book club where we read philosophy and drink wine. We mentioned this earlier in the podcast. We're going to try to get you get you into the group. Yes. The book that we're reading right now is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Have you read this book? No, I have not. You may have heard of it. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist, but he was also interred in several uh, concentration camps during wow. World War II. And Man's Search for Meaning is both an exploration of his time in concentration camps and a description of the experiences of the people who he was with. Wow. Um, but also, it's the beginning of his whole philosophy on psychotherapy. Viktor Frankl believed, you know, there were all these other philosophers who had tried to describe what was the primary thing that motivated human beings. And like Freud said, we were motivated to pleasure the thing that drove us was seeking pleasure. And Nietzsche said we were motivated to power. Viktor Frankl, after his time in World War II, said that the real thing that motivates human beings is meaning. And that's what it's all about. That's what's moving us all forward is that we're searching for meaning. I think that's true. And the second book I'm reading right now is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. You got to have like the, the my brain is hurting just shift it off to some Harry Potter to make all life happy and fun. I've never read the Harry Potter books. I'm going through them for the first time. Yeah, I haven't either. Um, I've read one, I think. You should check it out. I'm on number three. It's pretty good. That's awesome. No, I got these two. Um, I got these. Uh, I, I might be using the podcast. I'm reading Evicted, Pulitzer okay. Prize winning, based out of Milwaukee. Fantastic. Sad, 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 but necessary reading. Um, I'm going to do a book club over Zoom with some dear friends and colleagues across the country on this book on June 28th. And then I'm reading a beautiful, oh, it's a beautiful love story, family story called Pachinko. It is just fabulously written. It's love, it's sadness, it's tragedy. So I, I'm enjoying these. I'll add them to the stack. Love it. Okay, guys, Dr. J. Malone said we wouldn't go long. This is probably the longest one, and I probably could have gone another 30 minutes to an hour because this is what I do. Jay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time with us for the work you've done uh, and just for being such a great friend and colleague and ally in, in, the, in the work we do on a daily basis. Thank you for having me here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Capturing COVID my good friend, Dr. Jay Malone, a fellow Okie. In this episode, we touched on Jay's experience as a pediatric critical care physician at St. Louis Children's at Washington University in St. Louis. And I think more importantly, we, we discussed uh, his experience as being a leader, especially around uh, ethical decisions for not only St. Louis Children's Hospital, but really more for the BJC healthcare system during the time of COVID. And we touched on his experience pretty early on, even prior to the announcement of the pandemic in January, where he was working on creating a framework for the hospital or create policies for the hospital and hospitals to deal with shortages, especially around critical items such as ventilators or breathing machines. 
You know, I and and Gabby, we were really inspired by Jay's ability to recognize the equity concerns related to the distribution of resources and how they really worked to make sure no matter what hospital in St. Louis you went to, the same process was in place. So, for example, if you went into a, a hospital in the SSM system, you didn't mean you were going to get a ventilator there and wouldn't get it at a BJC healthcare system hospital. So super important and, again, showed the tremendous amount of collaboration that occurred in St. Louis. Jay was a critical leader in our hospital and in our system, and I really loved it when he talked about advocating for children, for pediatric patients, when the decision might have come down to needing to move a ventilator from a children's hospital to the adult hospital. This was unique and, and super important. Again, I am so, so thankful for Jay and, and all the work that he has done, not only for our healthcare system, our hospital, but also for the community uh, and what he did to deal with such craziness. You know, he really reflected on this notion of how big these decisions were. And we really jumped into some of the philosophy about being a physician, about being a husband, a dad, or whatever, when you get into this and, and still even trying to understand what that means. And I can tell you, uh, I work on that and think about that most days. So we have a lot more to unpack from the pandemic, and this episode is just one of many. So join us in our journey to listen, relate, and reminisce on shared and differing experiences. Tune in for our next episode to hear from a, a great colleague and friend, Dr. Jeannie Kelly. Jeannie is a OBGYN who specializes in maternal fetal medicine and was a an important leader uh, in this area during the pandemic for uh, Washington University and BJC. Trust me, trust me, trust me. You won't want to miss this one. All right. Thank you again, Jay, for joining us on the podcast. And another thanks to the Marker alum, Gabby Smith, for producing our show. Until next time, have a great, awesome week. Oh.